Okay, so onto the show today, and I have a monster episode with two of my favorite Bitcoiners. I've got Alex Gladstein and Nick Carter on the show to go through Alex's recent article, The Hidden Costs of the Petrodollar. Now, I say this all the time. When I'm doing a show based on an article, you have to go and read this. It is truly a monster article. It is in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. In the article, Alex goes about answering the question of whether having Bitcoin as the world's reserve currency could bring an end to dictatorships, inequality, and our reliance on oil. It is an absolutely amazing article. Once I read it, I hit Alex up and I said, come on, man, come on the show. I want to discuss this with you. But we also brought Nick on as a guest as Alex gets into the history of reserve currencies back to the gold standard throughout Bretton Woods. And I think Nick is an absolute beast at breaking this stuff down. Now, if you have any feedback on this show, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can jump into my Telegram group. Okay, over to the interview. Alex, good to see you, mate. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having us, Peter. Always a pleasure. Nick, your 150th appearance on What Bitcoin Did. How are you? I'm doing great. I think this is number eight, man. I hope I think it I'm might be nine. on top. Am I mm. on top? Is Lop ahead of me again? It's, no, Lop's behind. Breedlove is on eight now. The problem is I've got regular guests. That's messed like, up. That's unfair. You can't compare us to them. Yeah, they don't count. They don't count. I think this puts you back on top. <laughs> More importantly, the first pod- podcast I've ever appeared on with Nick. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's That's our first. Well, I feel uh, honored to have you both together because you're two of my favorite people to talk to. <laughs> Um, Okay, so Alex, uh, you know I'm a huge fan of your work. You produce, I think, some of the best content out there. I think the only person who rivals you for that spot is uh, the man who's joining us, Nick Carter. But your recent article on the petrodollar, I think it's my favorite thing I've I've read by you because um, you educated me on something that I've heard about, but I didn't really properly understand the mechanics and certainly didn't understand the geopolitical mechanics so firstly big thanks anyone listening it will be linked in the show notes you should probably read it before you listen to this interview but alex what was the background to this why did you decide to attack this topic yeah so i can credit nick and a few others actually for persistently reminding the world that when we talk about bitcoin's uh, energy use um, we're not talking about a comparison to like a visa which is what the media likes to uh, focus on Uh, in reality when you look at visa of course Visa is a, is a fintech kind of sitting on top of the banking system, which is sitting on top of the dollar system. So transactions actually, you know, use a lot more energy than, than, it, than it sort of seems on the surface. And my whole uh, goal here was to, to dive down past the surface to the bottom uh, of, of the monetary system and, and to, to fairly compare Bitcoin per transaction or whatever to the existing financial system. You have to compare the full stack. So, so Bitcoin is like this open stack. You can see it all and like we, we can kind of fig- more easily figure out the externalities. Um, the uh, dollars that we spend on a daily basis, uh, tr- you know, at, at today, usually through kind of like uh, commercial banking and, and fintech, uh, the, the full stack is hidden. Right. So my goal here was to dive all the way down and take a look at like what under what, what is backing the financial system today. And then that way we could kind of have a fair comparison in terms of the negative externalities of of like the Bitcoin system versus uh, versus the dollar system. And the, the whole premise of this conversation that I want to have with you guys is, is this idea that like uh, the world reserve currency or essentially what nations save in at a geopolitical level has evolved over the last, you know, century plus from basically a gold standard to the Bretton Woods standard, which we can get into, which was essentially uh, governments now using dollars pegged to gold, then evolving to what we could call maybe the treasury bill standard, 
which is after 71, 72, 73. Since then, nations have basically saved in, in U.S. debt, essentially, as like the hardest money, quote unquote. Um, and then for the context of our show here, obviously, my thesis is I think we're going to go to a Bitcoin standard as, as the next kind of monetary revolution in terms of what do central banks and governments and sovereigns actually hold uh, as like the, the hardest money. So again, we've gone from like gold to sort of dollars backed by gold to dollars slash treasuries backed by quote unquote nothing to I think we're going to head to Bitcoin. So that's that's the chronology here of what I want to kind of talk about. Fantastic. Well, you asked Nick to join us today because Nick is one of the world's leading experts on the history of the gold standard. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an expert, but I might be able to chime in here. But uh, yeah, Alex, I mean, did all the, I learned a lot from Alex's piece. So um, yeah, this is the Alex show. So it's an incredibly detailed and well-researched article. um, And I will circle it amongst everyone I know again. But I do think an important starting point, because even though I've covered this on the show before, other people won't have listened to all my previous shows. Um, I'm My producer, Ben, was one of the contributors to the website. WTF happened in 1971. But right. pre, pre-1971, it's probably good to just give an overview of the history. Nick, if you want to attack this from what happened after World War II, uh, leading up to essentially the Vietnam War and how world powers decided to work together on a common monetary base. Sure thing. Yeah. So, of course, there's a very long monetary history, which we can't fully cover here. But, um, you know, the long and short of it is in 1944, when it was pretty clear that the the U.S. and the Allies would win the war, um, effectively the Allies got together at this hotel uh, the Mount Washington Resort in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, which is a lovely hotel, by the way. I was actually just there. Um, it's very charming. It's kind of you know two mi- two hours north of Boston, in the shadow of Mount Washington, which is uh, you know pretty pretty tall mountain. Um, and uh, they discussed uh, a new international system. Uh, they set up a bunch of international organizations. And, of course, the key thing that came out of that was the agreement that the world would unify on this monetary standard administered by the U.S., with the U.S. as the main arbiter and administrator of that system. And uh, effectively, what had happened during the war was a lot of these European countries, they had actually given uh, or entrusted the U.S. with their gold reserves for safekeeping. There's a whole story about uh, European nations kind of fleeing with their gold, uh, getting it to the U.S. because that was considered to be the safe place. And uh, effectively, the U.S. in '44 took this bargain uh, to the world and to their allies saying, you know, we will administer the monetary standard. It will be based on gold. We will, for the most part, hold everyone's gold. And all of your sovereign currencies will just be different weights of the dollar, which will be backed uh, by gold and redeemable for gold. You know, keep in mind um, at this point in U.S. history, uh, gold convertibility for individual citizens was still suspended, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, uh, it had been suspended uh, in the 30s during the Great Depression. So it was um, a tiered system. There was gold convertibility for sovereigns, but not for you know regular folks. 
Uh, and so effectively, it was a, a gold-based standard uh, through the interface of dollars with other currencies just being different weights of gold or different weights of the dollar. Uh, and that persisted uh, for a couple decades. That was known as the Bretton Woods system. Of course, people talk about the IMF and the World Bank as the Bretton Woods uh, you know, institutions as well. Uh, so Bretton Woods is kind of a metonymy for that entire system that the U.S. used as it became the sole superpower, the sole nation that had really survived World War II intact with no destruction. And um, you know, the U.S. embarked on the Marshall Plan to help rebuild the world. They issued a huge amount of credit and you know distributed capital globally to sort of help rebuild Europe effectively. And because they were the you know unmitigated victor there, they were able to effectively seize control. And there was discussion at that time around a Bancor style system. You know, Keynes had advocated for Bancor, which would have been uh, a global reserve currency, would be a mixture of different sovereign currencies to avoid the Triffin dilemma. But that idea was actually shot down at the time, and instead we got this dollar-based standard. Uh, which ended up persisting for you know the next thirty years or so. Nick, can you just explain the Trithin dilemma? So I want to make sure. <laughs> maybe Alex can chime in here. I want to make sure I get this right. As far as I understand it, it's uh, this tension between domestic goals uh, and uh, international needs, as far as an issuer of the world reserve currency is concerned. Um, if the world has a need for, let's say, dollars, and you're issuing dollars as a global reserve, that's this constant pressure on dollars and that, you know, foreigners need dollars to conduct commerce in. And um, that conflicts with domestic goals um, because it makes exports uncompetitive in the country that is issuing the global reserve. Uh, And so it sort of causes this um, negative balance of trade effectively. And so Triffin, uh, who's an economist, I suppose, predicted this issue. And people knew that it would eventually be an issue, um, which is, you know, the two goals are kind of in tension, issuing a global reserve, a currency that everyone can use, and then being able to sort of have a stable uh, monetary uh, framework domestically. I don't know if that's sort of a full explanation. Yeah, I, I just, I guess I would point out that Triffin, you know, he came out with his theory in the 60s, and that's when, um, the world, generally speaking, started to question the U.S.'s ability to hold the gold peg at $35 an ounce. Number one, uh, the French, led by de Gaulle and, and other countries, really questioned, especially after the assassination of JFK, the direction that the U.S. went in, number one, with just like huge war spending for Vietnam, but also the Great Society. Um, so this was known as like guns and butter. And um, it was unclear to the world whether or not the U.S. would be able to uh, keep its promise uh, to redeem their gold. And in fact, later in the 60s, uh, you know, French statesmen, you know, came up with this uh, phrase like, uh, you know, the dollar is an exorbitant privilege. Um, and they sort of started to realize that in the Triffin dilemma, it re- almost required the U.S. to have this huge balance of payments deficit. Uh, and, you know, essentially what the other countries would end up be doing, end up doing is financing U.S. debt. Um, so when you got up to the late sixties, Britain actually, uh, kind of defaulted, let's say, um, and ended up having to devalue the pound in the late sixties as a result of like a lot of poor fiscal policy and its colonial collapse. 
And a lot of the other powers started to really worry the same thing could happen to the U.S. So um, in the summer of 71, <laughs> actually, the, the French sent like a battleship to New York City in August of 71 to like redeem their gold. And the British asked for like about three billion pounds of gold to be moved from Fort Knox to New York in preparation for withdrawal. So countries around the world uh, were basically calling the U.S.'s bluff uh, based on what they saw out of Vietnam and social spending, and they just didn't think the U.S. could sustain the system. So they were ready to, like, take their gold back. So Nixon, in a famous speech, uh, actually went on TV, and he uh, he declared this was a few days after the French sent the battleship. So literally, this was like a reaction to this uh, world demand for their gold back. And he said, no, we're not going to give it back. Uh, we're ending the gold window. You know, other nations can no longer redeem their dollars for gold. Um, he also announced uh, some like wage freezes and some more import tariffs. And, you know, this was kind of pitched as like a, a bid to save the economy as the U.S. was 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 entering into like a very inflationary decade. So, you know, the system that Nick described came under heavy stress at the end of the 60s. And the early 1970s really set the stage for um, you know, this transition to, to a new kind of world economy. Now, uh, just a couple, couple like big events I wanted to hit for the, for the audience. Um, as I mentioned, Nixon ended convertibility of gold in, in the late summer of 71. This kind of immediately devalued the dollar by 10%. So the, the fears of the world were founded. Uh, you know, the, you know, the, the U S was at the end of the day, not to be trusted to guard the world's reserve currency and its war in Vietnam and social programs uh, made it sort of like impossible for it to uh, guarantee the promises it once extended. Now, uh, the world kind of went into a uh, very inflationary decade uh, in, in the coming years. The next sort of big event I would I would hit is, is in 73. We have like this dynamic in oil really shifting. So first of all, you have this change between like colonial powers kind of controlling oil to sovereign dictatorships controlling oil. So in the 50s and 60s, you have this thing called the Seven Sisters. So these were like a handful of Western um, oil conglomerates that could really kind of determine the price of oil uh, through kind of uh, colonialist practices. So the, these folks were essentially kind of kind of thrown out slash um, they lost their power uh, to nations like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, Kuwait, etc. cetera, uh, in the 60s. And by the early 70s, uh, the, the, this OP, OPEC, uh, this kind of association of oil producing countries, um, really, really had a lot of leverage and, and, and power, whereas they didn't before. Like when countries tried to do this previously, like get power over the West, uh, like when Mexico tried to do this and when Iran tried to do this, like they got wrecked. So um, this was kind of like a historic shift where these oil countries could now actually hold a lot of leverage and power. So in 73, when the U.S. supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War, uh, the and we had put like a lot of pressure on the on on basically the whole developing world through our agricultural policies. As a response, the Arab nations um, decided to both like jack up the price of oil by four x uh, and and announce an embargo on the United States. So you had oil kind of going from like two dollars a barrel where it was for like a long time to ten, eleven, twelve dollars a barrel. Now this created an enormous flow of cash for the Saudis and, and the OPEC nations. This was a historic moment because it was so much money. Um, you know, essentially the OPEC ran a surplus and the rest of the world ran a net deficit. I mean, I can't stress how much, you know, just how much money came into the coffers of these Arab regimes. So uh, basically Kissinger and Nixon and, and the U.S. 
and, and the new Treasury Secretary, Simon, um, they were like, what do we do? Like, how do we kind of save this? How do we prolong dollar hegemony? How do we get uh, people to continue to demand and, and buy and use the dollar? This was their dilemma. And the, and the petrodollar was like the solution. The petrodollar was like their mechanism for, for what, how they would solve this issue. So by the end of that year, 73, the dollar had actually lost 20% of its value against other top currencies. And people called this like a, a peacetime redistribution of global wealth on a scale that had never been seen in living memory. So again, all this oil shifting from other countries to OPEC. Um, you know, to give another data point, in 74, the oil exporters had an account surplus of 70 billion, up from 7 billion the year before. And the thing is, they couldn't, th- this wealth that they were getting, they couldn't, uh, it was so much wealth, they couldn't spend it all. Uh, so there was like this mutual dilemma where like the Saudis and the oil states didn't know what to do with the money. And, and the U.S. had like a need for people to buy its debt. So through a bunch of meetings in 74 and 75, uh, Kissinger and Nixon and William Simon, the Treasury Secretary, basically figured out a, like a like a deal. Like we maybe would call it a pact with the devil, given 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 the Saudis um, proclivity for human rights violations, tyranny, uh, you know, later in history, kind of destroying other nations and things like that. But essentially, uh, you know, S- Simon and, and Kissinger said, um, hey, and this is a quote from Simon, you know, if the OPEC nations put a larger amount of their accumulated funds into investment in this country, this was a way of, of saving the day. Because the, the other way to save the day would be if the American public spent less and saved more. And that was not going to happen with Nixon, you know, facing impeachment. Um, so the idea is they were like, we need to get other nations to finance our debt because like, we're not going to do it through raising taxes. There's no way. Um, so, you know, essentially the deal was, uh, in the petrodollar system, uh, that these dollars that these OPEC nations were, were earning, that they would, they would not only like force the sale of oil to be in dollars. Um, so all, all oil sales were like now denominated in dollars, but they would take the earnings and they would actually buy U.S. debt with, with the profits. And this is what we call petrodollar recycling. And, and this mechanism really saved uh, dollar hegemony, I, I think, you know, would be my thesis. Um, and it, it wasn't necessarily like a market decision would be the other thing I would just like try to kind of hammer home. Like these, this was all ironed out through like secret deals. Like, you know, the Saudis could have just kind of pursued a broader portfolio of investment. They didn't have to go so heavy on U.S. debt. They didn't have to price oil in dollars. These were decisions they made in exchange for protection, okay? In exchange for massive amounts of weapons, massive amounts of protection. So essentially the Saudis became, you know, non-market investors in U.S. debt and the U.S. became uh, a non-market seller uh, of weapons to the Saudis. So, you know, Nixon, Kissinger, Simon, uh, they ended up kind of saving the day for the U.S. in a lot of ways, uh, at least for U.S. elites, uh, by figuring out a way to, to keep dollar hegemony alive. And indeed, it was even more strong in the late 70s and 80s than it was in the 60s in terms of the, num- the amount of kind of just total global trade denominated in dollars and amount of uh, global reserves held in dollars. And this really helped us, of course, in, in the Soviet uh, in the struggle with the Soviets, because through this system, we could print, <laughs> you know, we could print money to buy oil. Um, the Soviets had to literally dig it out of the ground or somehow get dollars in, in another way. And this gave us a huge, huge advantage. So so that kind of brings us uh, kind of into the 80s. Um, there were a lot of other um, interesting things. I'll just mention one other item here. 
the euro dollar market is very related. Uh, the euro dollar market was essentially something that happened in the beginning of the Cold War, where like Eastern Bloc nations needed dollar accounts, and they kind of established uh, ways to do that in in Europe outside of the purview of the Fed. Um, it, it was kind of like a I wouldn't say niche, but it wasn't a huge huge market um, until the petrodollar. Uh, so the petrodollar system uh, really relied on these euro kind of these like euro dollar uh, banks. Um, so that, you know, the Saudis would, would plow all their money into them. And then, and then from there, either, either get treasuries or, or the money would be lent out to like what they called LDCs or like developing world countries. And, and that was a kind of another kind of sad, um, uh, legacy of the, of the petrodollar system was that essentially a lot of, uh, poorer nations were kind of like forced to, you know, import, uh, you know, they, they all had to import oil, most of them at least. And, and now it was like super hard for them to do that. They had to like structure their economy in a way to like get dollars and they had to ignore domestic investment and spending. And this led to like a huge number of like debt crises in the, in the third world in the eighties and nineties. So you had a system where the U S and a lot of rich countries really benefited. Uh, but a lot of the world really, really, really suffered. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of like the first era of, of, of the petrodollar. That's amazing. Thank you for that explanation. Nick, I also noticed on Twitter a few times um, when one of the uh, Bitcoin critics step up, you have occasionally stepped into the argument and raised the petrodollar before. Um, you're, a, you're a strong critic of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, we've moved on, I would say, from like the first template for the petrodollar a little bit today, but it's just worth elucidating these things because, you know, part of the case for Bitcoin, people often consider in isolation without, you know, considering what the alternatives are. And the alternative is this dollar system. And as Alex says, the dollars uses this tool of U.S. hegemony. Uh, it's used to pursue political objectives and uh, obviously we see that with sanctions, but it has these externalities. And Bitcoin's externalities are pretty transparent. Anybody can quantify you know, its energy impact and the emissions and so on. The dollar's externalities are much more diffuse. They're much more opaque. I would argue they're deliberately opaque. Uh, and the dollar externalities have much more to do with you know, this military adventurism that we see worldwide, uh, that we'll probably get into later in the episode. They have to do with driving inequality uh, within the U.S. Uh, you know, and so these things are genuine and they're real, but they're just much less perceptible, which is why we have to do this analysis of the petrodollar system. Uh, but I guess the the broader point is this is a very imperfect system, and it pits the U.S. against. Uh, its allies in many cases, and also pits various social strata within the U.S. against each other. And so the dollar is not sort of homogeneously good for all Americans. In fact, you could argue that this system as constructed is actually pretty bad for the working classes, for anybody that depended on manufacturing jobs, uh, for you know the sector of society that makes physical things. Uh, and it's very good for a smaller set of sort of globalized elites. And, uh, you know, we can definitely get into that and expand on that. But that's the point is, look, we know Bitcoin's not perfect. It has costs, et cetera. The dollar system is also pretty exclusionary and, uh, you know, 
causes these rifts in society that are worth pointing out. Yeah, well, we should definitely get into that because there's, there's a number of points that Alex brings up um, in his article, the kind of negative externalities that come from the dollar system. But let's start, Nick, with that point. Let's start with the impact on manufacturing in the U.S. Um, I know Alex in his article alluded to what happened in the Rust Belt, um, the, uh, the the cost of exports for the U.S. and the rise of populism. Do you want to touch on that? Sure, yeah. So this is kind of what we were talking about with the Triffin Dilemma. Um, there's another phenomenon called Dutch disease, which is the idea that when you export a lot of a commodity, um, it sort of cannibalizes other sectors of the economy. In this case, the commodity the U.S. exported was the dollar. So what happens when you issue the global reserve currency is foreigners need to acquire lots of it in order to engage in commerce. And this causes it to sort of trade at a premium to where it would normally be settling. And what this means is that your exports are more expensive than your competitor nation exports. And so everybody looks at the charts that show things going badly wrong in the 70s, right? What happened in 1971, et cetera. One of the things that started to go wrong was our manufacturing sector just started to structurally decline as U.S. exports became less and less competitive and we started to run this huge trade deficit. And again, this wasn't actually unexpected. This was something Keynes pointed out in 1944 that would be a consequence of the dollar system. This is why the SDR or the Bancor was proposed. But we got the petrodollar, we got you know the dollars of global reserve. And so the U.S. was effectively forced into running this huge trade deficit, which meant that we would engage in consumerism and import things from abroad, export dollars, and export you know, relatively little of our own, uh, which meant that blue-collar manufacturing would be structurally suppressed. And so effectively, the U.S. working class was sacrificed at the altar of the dollar. And you know, that's had really negative effects on society. That's why the U.S., it's no coincidence, the U.S. is among the most financialized of the developed nations, um, and it has some of the highest inequality of any sort of OECD developed nation. Uh, it's a direct consequence of this system. And you know now we see the political ramifications of that. That's why you see the growth of populism, uh, this political enthusiasm for trade wars, things like that, is because the dollar system does not work for everyone. And we're kind of reaching a tipping point here where people are sort of starting to rebel a little bit against the status quo. Thank you for that. Um, one of the other areas I definitely want to dig into with you as well, Alex, is the destabilization of the Middle East through the petrodollar. There's two specific areas we can talk about. We can obviously talk about the support for uh, the House of Saudi, uh, their regime, the, the, mm-hmm. the war against Yemen. But we, I also wanted to talk to you about um, some of the, the suggestions around the Iraq war, which was completely new to me. I said to you before we started recording, I watched the BBC four-part documentary, which I will also put in the show notes because it's excellent. But um, as you you correctly asked me, did it touch on the finances or global finances? And it didn't. So should we? can we start um, by breaking down how the petrodollar has destabilized the Middle East? Yeah. Um, and just to recap, so far where we are, um, the... U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency um, was kind of propped up uh, after Nixon went off the gold standard 
by the petrodollar system. And again, at the heart of this was this idea of like uh, what some people call a double loan. So because the U.S. through its military force was able to like pressure the Saudis to uh, only sell oil in dollars, dollars became the medium of exchange for oil. That meant the U.S. government could literally just print dollars to pay for oil and the American economy didn't have to produce goods or services in exchange for the oil. That's like the first part of the double loan. The second part is that all the other countries had to pay dollars for the oil, but they couldn't print dollars. So they had to trade their goods and services for dollars in order to go pay OPEC. So, you know, all the U.S. really had to do was export treasuries, um, meaning bonds. And, you know, Simon, who was the Treasury Secretary who set this whole thing up, he was a bond salesman. So this he was really good at this. And <laughs> we, we basically got to sell bonds to finance all of our activities. So that that's kind of the trick here. Uh, and, and that is what sustained the ability of the U.S. to continue running these crazy deficits that have gotten like even more intense over time in terms of debt to GDP ratio. I think at the time in the 70s, it was about 30 percent. Today, it's 130 percent. So a lot of this has been sustained um, by uh, by the petrodollar system. Now, when it comes to like risks to the petrodollar system, you know, I guess my thesis would be that the U.S. has aggressively defended the petrodollar system. And, you know, some people say, I think David Graeber, who wrote Debt, said what I thought was quite quite sharp. He said that essentially he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't sure exactly to the extent, you know, today how important the petrodollar system still was. But as he noted, uh, at least through the, you know, the 90s and 2000s, American uh, policymakers certainly thought it was very important. And that's kind of like that's kind of what we need to focus on here. So the first threat to the petrodollar was actually back in the 70s. Uh, apparently, uh, OPEC nations were thinking about shifting away from the dollar as the sort of unit of account slash like MOE for for oil to something uh, called the SDR, which was like, a you know, kind of like a, a Keynes Bancorp inspired kind of unit of account that the IMF would kind of run um, and that would be collectively managed by all nations. So that would get rid of our exorbitant privilege. So in order to defuse that first threat, uh, the U.S. actually did a deal with the Saudis, another deal where we got them kind of like into the IMF on the premise that they would never allow the SDR to become the world reserve currency. So that's kind of how we diffused the first threat to to the sort of petrodollar system. The second threat came in the late 90s uh, with the euro. So you had this like uh, uniting of a huge economic structure. After the fall of the Soviets, we did not do another Bretton Woods. Like the world did not come together to, to create a new financial system. We kind of remained on dollar hegemony. Um, but the euro really threatened that. I mean, here you have a, a larger population than the U.S., what, five, at the time, 500 million people-ish coming together, very powerful economies. Um, so U.S. policymakers were were concerned about this. And if you read media from the time, there was a lot of talk about the euro unseating the dollar. Like if you read any financial newspaper from like 99, 2000, 2001, this was like a big, big deal. Like people really thought the euro would put a dent in the dollar. Maybe we would go back to like a bipolar financial system like we had in the 20s or whatever, where we had the pound and the dollar. Well, now we're, maybe we're going to have the euro and the dollar. And one of the biggest threats was this idea of the petro euro, right? Um, the importance of oil is, as I think, needs to be unpacked a little bit. Um, the first reason it's so important is because uh, it's not just the oil itself and, and the, the currency that it's denominated in, but it's all the derivatives on top of it. So like the amount of, I can't remember the exact number, but the, the number of derivatives in, traded on each barrel of oil is like astronomical. So the actual volume of like uh, oil-based derivatives is, is so enormous. So the fact that like the U.S. is able to get all these things priced in dollars 
is, is hugely, hugely helpful, uh, not just for the volume of oil itself, but all the derivatives on top. And then what ends up happening is all these other countries that want to participate in either oil or the oil markets, the energy markets more broadly, they end up having, they're sort of forced to do business in dollars. So their currency pair with the dollar starts getting really strong. So the second order effects of this are, are, are key. So again, at this point, you know, it's clear to U.S. policymakers that uh, protecting the petrodollar standard is is, is very important um, for keeping, you know, dollar primacy, essentially, and continuing to, to, to convince other nations to buy our debt. You know, we started with OPEC in the 70s. Uh, after 82, when oil prices fell off, they started, you know, dwindling in terms of um, purchases or purchasers of our debt. But Japan and Germany took its place uh, all throughout the 90s. And in the 2000s, you started to have the Chinese starting to buy uh, our debt. Um, but again, to, to sort of sustain and prop up this system um, where where our debt was so desirable, uh, at the base, I guess, is, is, is my case, is you needed to have that uh, that link to oil and, and that denomination of oil and then therefore broader energy markets and derivatives and dollars. So something very interesting happens in October 2000. Saddam Hussein, who's obviously, you know, uh, kind of very, very like stuck in the oil for food program, um, you know, bad guy. I don't want to defend him at all. He's a horrible dictator. Uh, but he, he did come out and say, hey, I'm going to sell my oil in euros. And by 2002, he was selling all of his 5% of the world's oil in euros to France and Germany through like UN brokered accounts. So the Petro Euro was like starting to be born, right? And this this kind of screws up the, the US plan if this continues if the petrodollar becomes 10, 20 percent of, of the U.S. oil, rather of the global oil market, it really puts a dent in, in our plans to have this nice little system. So um, it's worth noting that um, six months later, in March 2003, the U.S. government invades Iraq. And by June 2003, that new Iraqi government is now pricing oil in dollars again. And outside of a couple rogue nations, like you didn't have a threat to the petrodollar system for another 12 to 15 years. And we can touch on that in the conclusion, you know, because the system is, is now finally starting to come apart. But I guess my, my, my case is that I feel like American foreign policy makers believed that the petrodollar system was important, even if it, even if it was like less so on an economic front. Um, they thought it was so important that they wanted to defend it. And this is what, what I think Graeber does a good job of pointing out. Um, and the U.S. invasion of Iraq... You know, what other explanation do we have that's that that makes sense? We know that it wasn't Iraq, you know, Iraqi Operation Iraqi Freedom. It wasn't for human rights. We know that. We know that there was no connection to Al Qaeda, um, and we know that there were no WMDs. So, you know, and we also know that the idea that it was like to counter Iran doesn't make much sense because in the eighties we. <laughs> We were funding Saddam to counter Iran. So none of the big explanations make a lot of sense. So today there's no consensus among, you know, mainstream thinkers, politicians, historians. No one really knows why we went to war in Iraq. They call it a, a war in search of a reason. And I think this is a very compelling explanation. Um, it, it wasn't just to get oil. I mean, we w the U.S. wasn't importing uh, that much oil from the Middle East at the time. We get most of our oil from ourselves, from Canada, from Mexico, from Venezuela. Um, so it wasn't about the loot itself. It was about the, the continued kind of system and making sure that all the nations in the world price uh, oil 
uh, in dollars. And, and that, and, and I would say that American foreign policy has, has protected that to the extent it can. Now today, this is starting to dwindle and deteriorate. In 20, late 2013, 2014, China stopped, um, buying new treasuries. And I think, uh, I think as Luke Groman has pointed out, the world has sort of like, been like net negative treasuries since then. So they're sort of dishoarding. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. government is now the, the majority purchaser of, of these treasuries. Um, and the Biden administration, you know, they talk about dollar primacy. It's still important, but there's just not much geopolitically we can do. Like, let's just put it this way. If if the U.S. was in its current state of affairs, I don't think we, we would have invaded Iraq back in 20, 2003. Like we were at a very, we were at like an apex of hyperpower at that point. We no longer have the same geo, geopolitical power. And, and in the last few years, indeed, Russia and China, all these other countries have started to do more business in their own currencies. And, you know, we're watching the decline of the dollar. Like, yes, it still is 60 percent of reserve current, you know, reserve holdings, but that's down from 80 percent plus. So we're, we're on the, you know, downside. We're on the back nine <laughs> of the petrodollar here. Um, now, I'm not going to say it's going to end tomorrow because everyone who's ever tried to predict the end of this system always has egg on their face because it lasts a lot longer than people think because there's a lot of inertia here. But uh, I think it's reasonable to think and interesting to see what Nick Nick believes, but it's reasonable to think that in the next 10, 15 years, you'll start seeing a real shift, whether it's to a bipolar world or a multipolar world or potentially a world where, you know, we no longer have the petrodollar as kind of the reserve currency, you know, propping up U.S. debt, but but rather maybe the Bitcoin standard. I, I want to add two more case studies to this um, military connection uh, to the U.S. adventurism connection. Um, so Lynn Alden has this great quote: "You know, there's no shortage of odious dictators in the world, but um, you know, we choose to go after a few very specifically, and it's not a coincidence the ones the U.S. has gone after. So obviously, Saddam completely contrived war, no clear justification for it. Um, Gaddafi." Of course, he didn't try and sell oil for euros. He tried to sell oil for gold. And, uh, you know, a few years later, Gaddafi uh, was dead, um, you know, thanks to a U.S. airstrike and, and a local militia. Uh, there's another dictator that tried to sell oil for not dollars, which was Chavez. He threatened to do it. And uh, we unsuccessfully tried to launch a coup. So there are three case studies of dictators saying, we want to sell our oil commodity for something other than dollars. And in each case, the U.S. successfully or unsuccessfully deposed that dictator. And there's dozens and dozens of odious dictators the world over. But, you know, we choose very specifically the ones we've gone after. And uh, this dollar, petrodollar, uh, you know, connection seems to be a big part of the reason in many of those cases. You could, you could also, just one more thing, you could also add Iran. Obviously, uh, Iran has tried to sell, has sold uh, energy goods in different currencies, um, and the U.S. has uh, has put them under a lot of pressure, obviously, especially th- their efforts to sell to, to India. Um, so generally speaking, yeah, the, the, the facts are pretty strong here in terms of American foreign policy trying to defend dollar primacy and to bring it to today. Uh, obviously, we have this like Nord Stream deal happening, which has gotten a lot of media attention lately. And it looks like, again, like, whereas maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we would have fought it really hard. Um, we're just in a different position now. And Biden has indeed said he's not going to pursue, pursue sanctions on the guy who's in charge of Nord Stream. So it looks like the Biden re- administration is now 
you know, sending some signals that maybe they're not going to be defending the petrodollar uh, as much as they used to. Next up, I talked to Alex and Nick more about the petrodollar and a Bitcoin standard. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's kick off with sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And being an amazing sponsor they are, I've agreed with them. A competition that we're going to be running in Miami to give away a Lambo, but this competition has another added edge to it. Every single Bitcoiner will love this. Whether you like Bitcoin or not, you are going to love this. I cannot wait to announce it. Now, with sportsbet.io, you have access to every market you could possibly care about. They cover football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, and they even have esports. And if you're a new customer, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, someone reached out to me recently. They said, Peter, how exactly are you using Exodus? Why should I use it? So my accountant, lovely as she is, always gets pissed off with me. She's like, Pete, you're sending Bitcoin, you're receiving Bitcoin. I've got no idea who it's from. Who is two? I can't run your account. So when Exodus reached out to me, the first thing I did was I checked out their advanced feature, which allowed me to label all my payments to keep a good track record of who's going what and where it's coming from. And now at the end of each month, I can give her, with my smug face, I can give her all the payments, all the transaction history, so we can keep a good audit of our Bitcoin spend and receive. So if you want to check it out, they have crushed the UX. It is available at exodus.com, or you can search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And this week, we're going to finish off with Casa, the very best in Bitcoin security. Now, if you're sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin, even with the recent dump, and you aren't custodying it yourself, or you have it all in a single wallet, it is probably time for you to consider Casa. And I know what you are thinking. Pete, do I need this? Come on, it's going to be a pain to set up. Some of you might be even thinking, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet? I've got no idea what you're talking about. I know, I know, I know. Listen, I had all the same questions, but honestly, it could not be easier to set up. And once you have, you have so much peace of mind. Now, a multi-sig wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations. And that's going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. If you have any questions about Casa, you can reach out to me, you can email me or DM me. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Have either of you considered or looked into what the implication is of an unwinding of the petrodollar? It, it doesn't sound particularly good for the U.S., well, I think theorists disagree generally, um, and I think you have to consider the class issue here. You know, so the the dollar and just more generally, kind of U.S. capital markets is like the center of the globe, and the assets that foreigners use to store value in, whether it's treasuries or you know, U.S. bonds or equities, uh, that has massively benefited. You know the wealthy U.S. globalized elites that own financial assets, that work in finance. As we know, finance has become engorged. Share of GDP has grown dramatically since the '70s, and so that globalized set of elites has been an enormous beneficiary of this system. So they have a strong incentive to keep it going. The U.S. has this enormous ability to pursue sanctions via that highly integrated dollar system because they are the central nexus of, of all international trade. 
So it benefits, you know, a relatively small share of society. Of course, you know, the American middle and working class has been hollowed out. And, uh, you know, a median male income today is just not enough to support a household, frankly, in the U.S. Uh, and we have, you know, an opioid epidemic in the heartland of America, and we don't have any manufacturing anymore. So I think if we left that standard and um, you know, strategically devalued the dollar and re-onshored manufacturing in this country, that would shift the, the, you know, the balance of power back towards labor as opposed to capital in this country. And uh, that would be you know, genuinely very good for a large share of you know, the U.S. population. Uh, it would also mean that the U.S. would lose its ability to pursue these non-military policy objectives via sanctions. Uh, so there's certainly, you know, slightly disempower those elites that benefit from their proximity to Washington, to the dollar system. So it's kind of heterogeneous what the impact on society would be. But some would argue that it's kind of a necessary move that probably should occur. And just to piggyback on that, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you look at these charts from what the fuck is happening, you know, has, has happened since 1971. I mean, yeah, elites uh, have been enriched enormously. Anyone in finance, defense, services, technology, I mean, just the financial sector alone in the U.S. has grown from 10% of GDP to 20% uh, over the last few decades. Um, so coastal elites have done really well, including people like me. I mean, so, you know, this is something I've been at this system. I've been a beneficiary of for sure. Um, but a, a U.S. that's beyond the petrodollar would potentially, you know, be a lot less unequal, would have a lot less sort of like financial privilege for the elite. Um, we would like lo- lose this need to prop up these dictators. I mean, again, the fact that we propped up the House of Saud for so many decades has had so many negative externalities. I mean, both Gulf, you know, both Gulf Wars, we came in to defend them in different ways. Uh, you know, 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were Saudi uh, bin Laden was Saudi, and yet we never went after Saudi. And in fact, every time the Congress tried to go after Saudi, it was snuffed out. We've never been able to investigate them properly for connections to 9-11. Um, and there's a bunch of other dictators as well who, who who are kind of like propped up through this system. And then you have the fossil fuel industry, obviously, which has been you know heavily subsidized in this way, in addition to fighting off nu- nuclear energy across the world in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like a lot of these nations saw what happened in 73. They saw oil quadruple in price and they were like, we don't want to import oil and be at the mercy of, of you know, these, these handful of countries. We want to be energy independent. Well, guess what? <laughs> the U.S. and the World Bank and the IMF did not like that. So we did not let countries become energy independent. So there's been a whole bunch of things that are the negative externality uh, of, of the petrodollar. Um, and, and don't, you know, and don't forget this fossil fuel piece. Like the U.S. is the, you know, U.S. military is the single largest consumer um, of oil. Uh, and you have to really think carefully about what backs the dollar here. So um, we have a system now where I guess to sum up, um, you know, the dollar is backed by a political pact that has really like determined the way that capital flows in the international economy. You know, it has not been a market kind of decision here that there's been political pacts and deals made. We've used our power, uh, and and you know the system is 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 supported by our deals with dictators, our wars abroad, uh, as Nick has described very eloquently, our um, increasing inequality domestically, um, and and this sort of reliance on the fossil fuel industry. So I think like a petrodollar America moving forward, you know, could be a lot stronger on all those fronts. And Nick, how do you think this might affect uh, other nations who? 
rely on the dollar. I, I was recently in El Salvador. It's a dollarized country. Uh, something Jack uh, Malas said to me, uh, which was a real standout quote when I first got there. He said, uh, the US is increasing the M2 money supply, but there's no stimulus checks reaching the people in El Salvador. So do you, do you think this might lead to these dollarized countries maybe moving off the dollar themselves? Or do you think it would just uh, create a more stable dollar for them domestically? What's interesting is there's this odd tension because on the one hand, I'm very critical of Federal Reserve policy, but on the other hand, dollarization as a solution to um, monetary failure in emerging markets is often a great solution and one that I completely advocate for. Yeah. Um, so the Federal Reserve, as you know, as unstable um, in its mandate as it may be, still achieves monetary stability that far outstrips what we're seeing in much of the developing world. And I would say the dollarization happens too infrequently. I would actually advocate for it to happen much more. Um, that said, the Federal Reserve has has these tiers. It's got this kind of hierarchy with the central banks that it has uh, swap line agreements with. Uh, and so they do exercise political discretion in terms of sort of who has access to sort of U.S.-based money, uh, who has privileged access to that system and who doesn't. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if we have another devaluation, um, you know, 1970s-style inflation and devaluation in the dollar, whether these dollarized countries choose to stay on the dollar standard. Um, oddly enough, I believe that, you know, the cryptocurrency industry, uh, you know, which makes capital incredibly liquid, uh, and accessible globally, in particular stable coins and dollars, um, you know, has been a tool which projects the dollar uh, out to many of these emerging markets with you know sort of net good effects, right? I mean, you give someone the choice between a rapidly depreciation depreciating currency and the dollar, uh, they're going to opt for the dollar. Uh, you know, a significant percentage of the time. Nick, let me tell um, you uh, something interesting. Sorry to interject. Yeah. Uh, so I've been fortunate enough to travel a lot of the world. Uh, doing this podcast, uh, and I've been to non-dollarized countries where they still want the dollar. So I was out in Cambodia, um, and mm-hmm. they wanted the dollar. Uh, they didn't want the the local currency. They also another thing I've noticed they won't people won't take any notes which are crumpled or got tears in. But that's a, a side point. But right. interestingly, when I was in El Salvador and I was in El Zonte, when I tried to pay with the dollar, they were people were actually asking for Bitcoin. Yeah, so you see the hierarchy of hardness, yeah. right? Cambodia, Cambodia became semi-dollarized with the UN mission in the 90s, I believe. So that brought in a huge influx of dollars. And so you have these semi-partially dollarized societies like Cambodia, but El Salvador, is, they sort of ratified the dollarization, right? Yeah, and we, we, what we could be very well moving to is kind of like a system where, as you're watching starting to happen, Peter, um, Bitcoin may become the ultimate uh, monetary good at the very top of the money hierarchy, um, and it may be held by a lot of governments. But the difference here, and it's worth dwelling on, gold was captured, as Nick pointed out, like by the 30s, 40s. I mean, gold had been captured domestically in the U.S. It had been uh, stolen and excavated from developing countries by colonial powers, and it had ultimately been centralized in the hands of largely the U.S. government by the 40s, 50s and 60s. Bitcoin is not as easily confiscatable. I mean, there's a reason why Satoshi chose April 5th as his or her birthday or whatever. I mean, this person who designed the system was thinking about 
6.102 and was thinking about the centralization and capture of gold. And they designed a system whereby, you know, the asset was invisible. It could teleport. It could be uh, the signing device could be kind of like broken apart and, 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 you know, diversified. So, you know, I think we have a different, we have another shot here to create a new system where the ultimate monetary good is, is less uh, centralized and less confiscatable. And I guess what it could look like is kind of like a Bretton Woods kind of system where you may actually have the dollar and a handful of fiat currencies still be really powerful, but they're like kind of pegged to Bitcoin at some rate. I mean, that, that's one possibility, I suppose. Um, and that gives like developing countries a huge bonus now if they can, if they can realize this before others. They can start mining Bitcoin. They can start attracting Bitcoin, you know, companies and, 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 and they can get a leg up in the new world economy. So I think it's really important for people to think about what could happen over the next few decades. And even if you assign a chance of the Bitcoin standard, uh, like a, you know, 5%, um, you should be thinking about that 5% chance <laughs> and as a policymaker, as someone running a country, et cetera. So as we sit here, no one knows what's going to happen post petrodollar. I personally think it'll be good for the United States. I mean, yes, our, our, our war, our, our warfare state and, and some of our really extravagant welfare that we pay out at a very inefficient rate will have to decrease. And, but some of our exports will go up. You know, if the dollar becomes weaker, we'll be able to sell more to the rest of the world. I, I think you're already seeing that with supply chains, you know, coming back to our country. Hopefully we won't have to rely on like communist countries to, to create like medicines that we need and things like that. So, I mean, I think there's a good case to be made here that moving to this uh, standard where the U.S. dollar doesn't have this exorbitant privilege, but it's just sort of one of many currencies, maybe a more desirable one, but sort of underpinned by Bitcoin um, is like a really kind of nice, uh, nice thing, nice thing to look forward to. Well, a number of us are moving to our own personal Bitcoin standards anyway. Um, I'm essentially on one. I, I assume you both are. It becomes a lot easier once you've been in Bitcoin for four years because you've had the hurdle of one halving. So you've gone through a market cycle. Um, I would love to see nations move to a Bitcoin standard. But I still think there is volatility risk. We, we can't ignore what happened in the last week. Yes, we can talk about diamond hands, etc. But that still has to make people consider. They still have to consider volatility. Do, do you worry about that at all, Nick? Or do you think we will, if we got to the stage where maybe more nations had moved to a Bitcoin standard, we would have higher trading volumes, higher liquidity, and therefore the volatility wouldn't be such an issue? I view volatility as the market's expression of uncertainty. And so we clearly are in a very uncertain time. It's not clear how, right now the volatility is partially state-driven. People don't know how major uh, you know, powers like China are going to react to Bitcoin, or even the US for that matter. As we begin to understand that better, I expect that the market's expectations, and hence the volatility, will become more stable over time. Uh, so if we do see central banks adopting Bitcoin in their foreign exchange reserves, I think that abates a lot of the uncertainty, right? You know, then we're on a path towards towards stability. Uh, the other thing to note is that in the 70s, gold was extremely volatile, you know, is undergoing this financialization process. So I'd say we're in kind of in a similar situation right now. We have this commodity, which is potentially very useful from a monetary perspective. It's interplaying with, you know, this very uncertain, uh, you know, monetary backdrop. Uh, so, you know, fixed supply commodities tend to be volatile. Uh, that's sort of intrinsic to them. That's sort of the price you pay for the nice qualities that you get from that commodity. So, we're also Peter in this like price discovery phase um, where it took 
you know, thousands of years for humans to figure out the value of gold. I mean, at first, not everybody realized it was so valuable, but over time, kind of independently across the world, different communities of people realized that this rock was was something that they could use and it was hard to make. And they tried alchemy and it didn't work. And it's held its purchasing power for a long time. But that, that was a process that, that stretched out over thousands of years. And that's being shrunken into like decades here with Bitcoin. So, you know, we have this price discovery happening now. We're now entering the second decade. Now you're starting to see corporations start to realize that it, it might be a good thing to have. Like, you know, Ray Dalio coming out today, I would say, is, or recently is, is probably an interesting indicator, probably pretty significant. And, uh, you know, there's going to be short-term volatility all the way up uh, as we as we go from what two percent of the world is using this thing to ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent. But at the end of the day, I, I don't really view this as like a I view this as a very difficult phenomenon to stop as as people realize that it's going to be the ultimate monetary good. But I do think that it will be a positive, um, and and I think that the petrodollar system is again not looked at closely enough in terms of what what are the negative externalities of this thing. And I think we could, you know, speaking as American, again, I think we could be better off um, not having this exorbitant privilege. I think we could we could be a more dynamic country. And I think we're pretty ready for the Bitcoin standard. I mean, America has, you know, more and more, you know, infrastructure, mining, users, developers, like holdings. Like I know none of these things control Bitcoin, but like I would say like we, we are we are in prime position here. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And uh, every attack seems to be batted back, which is good. We've, uh, despite China FUD and uh, Energy FUD and uh, Elon Musk Dogecoin bullshit, uh, we've defended $30,000 pretty well, which is uh, it's good. But to, I, I guess one of the things, uh, Alex, that you're looking out for is the first uh, oil trade that settled in Bitcoin. <laughs> that would be super interesting to you. And do you think we potentially get to a uh, petro Bitcoin standard? Well, I mean, I guess part of what my, what my hope is, is that, um, oil becomes less important. Uh, I mean, like some, like some have pointed out that a lot of oil's value comes from the fact that it has this double use where it's kind of like, uh, it almost has this store value property as well. In addition to like its industrial, you know, value. And, and of course gold, most of gold's value is from its store value, sort of monetary uh, property, as opposed to its, um, actual kind of industrial kind of, uh, you know, uh, ornamental value. So I, I hope that that oil becomes less important to the human race over time. I, I, I don't think it's good to be based on fossil fuels. That's at least my opinion. Um, and I think Bitcoin can pull us into a, a, a world where we're much more reliant on uh, other kinds of either renewable or kind of nuclear energy. I think it, it's it's very dynamic and it fits into that world, whereas obviously oil doesn't. So um so, yeah, I mean, I think you will eventually see like Bitcoin settling uh, all of these like major in, in, international um, uh, trades. I mean, look, uh, the, the petrodollar took over uh, gold as the way that nations settled balance of payment issues. And I guess my thesis here is that eventually Bitcoin's going to do that. So uh, kind of as that settlement layer. The cool part is, though, that even though as citizens were like, again, uh, they were um, stripped of their ability to use gold uh, in many ways. That ain't going to be so easy for governments to do with Bitcoin. And, you know, we've got like the Lightning Network and we've got ways to like do final private settlement of Bitcoin um, <laughs> in ways that that are really easy and, and can be done on a smartphone. So 
I'm I'm very bullish about 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 this future. And Nick, while I have you here, um, as, as we come into a close, I do want to just take advantage of uh, your recent press conference and uh, just <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, how Bitcoin does promote uh, investment in re- renewables and uh, the energy FUD that we've been uh, experienced recently since uh, Elon Musk decided to learn in public. So do you want to just add some closing notes on that? Because I think people would love to hear you yeah. talk about that. So, you know, the great commonality here is that we're talking about monetary standards, which are backed by or based on energy, except one of them is hydrocarbons. And the other one is any energy source that is suitable. And of course, Bitcoin has this great property, which is totally distinct from other ways that we consume energy, which it doesn't care about when that energy is generated, right? You don't have to match it to the grid peak times, like the way we have to actually match our normal energy generation. And it doesn't care about where that energy is produced. And it's a quirk, it's an interesting quirk of. Um, the CCP's overbuild of energy resources in their country in the last couple of decades, that so much Bitcoin hash rate ended up in China. And like Alex says about you know political mechanisms as opposed to market mechanisms, this was a political mechanism. China had this sort of centrally planned grid where they just built a massive overcapacity of resources. It caused all this stranded energy to emerge. We're talking Yunnan curtailed 40 terawatt hours of hydropower in the year 2017 alone. That's like one-third of the Bitcoin network's worth. I mean, it's just a preposterous amount. That's more than most countries produce in hydropower total. So because China had this you know, pretty rough approach to energy resources, Bitcoin hash rate ended up localized there. It wasn't that Bitcoin miners have some sort of affinity for China. And so now... We're seeing this potential massive distribution event where the CCP looks to be discouraging mining in China, and miners are aggressively looking to move outside of China. And this is, of course, going to reduce any dependence we might have had on the Chinese government, so that's great. And the other thing is that it's probably going to massively reduce the ecological impact of Bitcoin production and uh, Bitcoin consensus because China has a very carbon-intense grid. And so we're going to see this amazing migration, which is so exciting. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainties where the hash power is going to go, but it looks like, you know, Central Asia, Russia, Pakistan, potentially even Nigeria, certainly the US. We're going to see this distribution of the Bitcoin network, you know, the nexuses of production away from like one centralized nation to a much more globally diversified patchwork. Uh, and of course, Now, miners have this strong incentive to seek out renewable, stranded, otherwise wasted sources of power. Uh, And I believe that the overall Bitcoin network will get much greener as a consequence of this. And so a lot of people think it's a bad thing because, you know, maybe hash rate will drop in the short term. But quite the contrary, I see this as an amazing step in towards of progressing towards this genuinely globally generated commodity which no single country has that much influence over. And it couldn't contrast better with, for instance, the Bretton Woods situation where the U.S. had the vast, vast majority of the world's stock of gold and they had this tremendous influence to shape that system. 
By contrast, Bitcoin is, as Satoshi says, produced by the majority. And, you know, it will now increasingly be produced globally at stranded or and hopefully green energy assets on a global basis. So really fascinating time and an incredible I'm incredibly optimistic about the next 12, 24 months here. Amazing. Well, listen, look, one more thing, Peter, I, I just want to finish because remember, folks, I'm a human rights activist and I wouldn't be doing this or saying this or spending all this time with you if I didn't think that that the petrodollar was negative for human rights and that we could improve upon it. And I think, again, where we started with gold, gold was very like, uh, you know, easily manipulated by colonial powers and by tyrants. I mean, it was very centralized, confiscatable. Uh, the petrodollar system, as I've tried to outline here, was was also bad in many ways for human rights. It really empowered a lot of tyrants around the world and allowed, I think, the U.S. to pursue policies which it may not have done otherwise, which were really bad for human rights. Um, but now we have the possibility to move to this other system uh, where at its base, it's going to be very bad for tyrants. And, and, and you're watching that happen live partially with the Chinese government basically having an allergic reaction to this thing. Um, that's going to kind of deepen over the next few years as... Uh, autocratic governments kind of realize what they're what they're playing with here. Um, so I'm again positive about the future. Well, I appreciate you both. I've learned so much from both of you. Um, I can't wait to get to Miami and have a beer. It's been a long wait with this COVID stuff. Uh, so we're all going to get to hang out and talk Bitcoin and maybe some other stuff. Uh, I will share everything for both of you in the show notes. Uh, but I appreciate you. See you soon. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> 